We're in this series called Feed Yourself. Look at your neighbor. Say, Feed Yourself. Please. Please. For the love of God, feed yourself. All right? Praise God. Not only today do I want to bring a light to some truth that crystallizes this idea for us that we need to be feeding ourselves, but I also want to spend some time today familiarizing us with this book that we hold in our hands with just a little bit more historical context. So, class is in session. Are you ready? Yeah, you're going to need this in your hands. If you have one, take it out. If you have a smartphone with the Bible, take that out. If you need a Bible, raise your hands, and our ushers will be glad to grab one and bring it to you if you need one. But get this in your hands, and I I just want to start by saying that the Bible that we hold in front of us is not the way that the Bible always was, right? I I think you historically may know that. This Bible came together over about 1,600 years, written by over 40-plus authors. It's an incredible story. You, it, it's worthy of, of doing your own little Google search. Just put in there, how did the Bible come to be, or something like that, and Google will tell you. Amazing. It's amazing. But today, I just want to give you a brief highlight, a very, very brief history of this thing that you're holding in your hands, because ignorance leads to fear, which leads to stay away. And if I'm not familiar and have knowledge about what I'm holding, then it's a part of the reason why I stay away from the Bible. But if I know what this is, and we take away ignorance, which means ignorance means no, without knowledge. That's what it means, without knowledge. If I take away the, the ignorance, and I don't have any fear of this book, and I can just pick it up, and it's a friend of mine, then, then that's what we ought to do. So how did this come together? Well, in about the 8th century B.C., there was a king named Hezekiah. Hezekiah was a good king. Hezekiah had a bunch of scribes, and he said to the scribes, hey, I want you to go and start a collection of all the writings that are out there because our people, the Israelite people, God's people, we've been doing a lot of writing. And the scribes began to gather together these writings from different places at different times and to collate them all together into one manuscript, so to speak. And eventually, over time, this collection became known as the Tanakh. Everyone say Tanakh. Tanakh is really an acrostic more than it is a word because Tanakh has three letters, T, N, and K, and those T, Ns, and Ks were the collection uh, of their Bible back then, the Hebrew Bible, which consisted of the T, the Torah. Everyone say Torah. Torah is the law, is also known as the Pentateuch, Penta, like Pentagon, meaning five. The first five books of the Bible is the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's the law, that is the Torah, that is the Pentateuch. God gave the law to his people so that they would be set apart. They would live differently. They would live according to his ways. And through God's ways, they would bless all nations. It wasn't just so that they could be special and different. It's so that they could lead others to the life that God gives through the law, really through his life. So that's you had the the T. The N is the Nevi'im. Say Nevi'im. Yes, this has nothing to do with that movie Avatar. Nevi'im is the prophetic writings. People like Jeremiah, Isaiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, all the minor and major prophets. You might have heard these terms. It's just talking about the length of the book more than anything else. When you say major major and minor prophets, it's not like the minor prophets were lesser. We don't like you. You're just wee little prophets. So the Nevi'im are all the prophets. And then you have the K, the Ketuvium. Everyone say Ketuvium. I may be saying that wrong, uh, but this is the writings, more like the wisdom writings, like the book of Proverbs, Psalms, Song of Solomon, and the Hezekiah and scribes and some, 
some subsequent kings put together this Hebrew Bible called the Tanakh, and this is the Bible that was in existence when Jesus was on the earth. This is what the people of God studied. This is what they read at their church services, and in, not really church services, but in their temple gatherings. And they would read the scrolls of the Torah, the Nevi'im and the Ketuvim, and they would read all these things. And Jesus even said, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commands, that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you love others as yourself, essentially summarizing the entire Tanakh in two lines. That's why all of this other writings exist, is that we would love God and love each other. That was the Bible until Jesus showed up, and new scripture began to be written. Accounts of Jesus' life that we call the Gospels, the good news, eyewitness accounts of Jesus on the earth, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then you had letters that were written, some historical capturings like the book of Acts, and some letters between church leaders. Hey, here's what I'm hearing from God about how we need to lead the church. Church in Rome, church in Ephesus, church in Galatia, church in Colossae, church in Thessaloniki, church in Philippi. All these letters got written. We call them epistles, which is a weird word for letter. And these letters got circulated around, and then you have some more prophetic writing in the book of Revelation. You have letters between leaders like John and Peter and Timothy, and you had a bunch of stuff written, and eventually some wise Christian leaders got together in what they call the Council of Nicaea in the year 325 A.D., and then another council, the first council of Constantinople in the year 381, they gathered together to ask a lot of difficult questions in the church, but one of them is all these writings that are floating around, like which of these are holy scripture, like the Tanakh, and which of them are error, and are maybe just nice devotionals, but they're not sacred writings. That's what scripture means, by the way, sacred writing holy, set apart, consecrated. Which are and which aren't? Because there's a lot of writings happening. And what they did is they decided there's three requirements for something to be considered holy scripture. They said, number one, the writing has to be by one of three people, a disciple of Jesus, like the 12, really the 11, but then they added one more because Judas went haywire, right? So one of the disciples or an eyewitness to Jesus' ministry. Might not have been a disciple, but I saw what was happening. Or by somebody who personally interviewed either a disciple or a witness like Luke. Not a disciple. However, he wrote the Gospel of Luke and he wrote the book of Acts. So that's the first requirement. The second requirement was, was it written in the Jesus generation? Meaning any book written or letter written after 100 AD was considered not sacred. It had to be written in the time by the people who had actually experienced, been near to the people or Jesus himself. That was the second requirement. And the third requirement was, does this align with Tanakh? Does this align with the scripture that we already have, that's been revealed to us by God through people like Moses and David and Solomon? Daniel and Jeremiah, Isaiah. Does it align with all of that? If it doesn't, then it's not part of the Holy Scriptures. And so they poured through all the writings of the time and they whittled it down to what we now have in what's called the New Testament. The Tanakh is the Old Testament, and now we have the New Testament. And combined the Old Testament and the New Testament, they declared as canon. Canon comes from the Greek word canon. 
It's amazing. And canon means measuring rod. And they measured all of the writings and says, does it measure up to being a sacred text, a scripture from God Almighty, inspired by the Holy Spirit, written down by human hands? And that's how we got to the Bible. It wasn't until 1227 that a dude named Stephen Langton decided that these letters were so long that it was hard to make sense of where you were in the letter. So he says, I'm going to break down each letter into chapters. Cool. And in 1555, another dude named Robert Stephanus, pretty cool name, decided even the chapters are too long, and I'm going to break down the chapters into verses. And so in 1555, roughly, we have the version of the Bible that we have here in our hands with chapter and verse. Now listen to me. Chapter and verse were like the Dewey Decimal System. It really had nothing to do with the story it had everything to do with reference. So if I were to say to you, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And you said, man, that's good. Where'd you get that? Well, I got it from the letter that Paul wrote to the church in Rome, the book of Romans. And it's kind of in the middle somewhere. So just read and find it. And you'd be reading like, where, 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 where? It'd take forever until somebody, Stephen and Robert, said, hey, Let's put reference guides so now I can just say to you, go look at Romans chapter 8, verse 1, and you'll find there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Reference. Here's what the chapters and verses were never meant to do. They were never meant to divide thought or to separate story. And sometimes the chapter and verses come in weird places and they seem to divide thought and separate story when they're never meant to divide thought and separate story. They're just meant as reference guides. Case in point, with the biblical truth that I want to bring today. If you have a Bible, I hope you do, I want you to open it up to the end of Matthew chapter 3, beginning in verse 13, and we're going to read the end of Matthew 3 and into the beginning of Matthew chapter 4 and two stories that have been separated by chapter and verse. I don't think we're meant to be separated by chapter and verse. It's a continuation of the same story about Jesus Christ. Are you ready? There's a theme in plain sight that is revealed in these truths in this one singular story at the end of Matthew 3 and the beginning of Matthew chapter 4. Verse 13, then Jesus came from Galilee up in the north down to the Jordan River, the very eastern edge of Israel, by the way, is where this Jordan River is, to be baptized by John the Baptist. But John tried to deter him saying, I need to be baptized by you and do you come to me? Me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. This is what the plan was from the beginning, so we're going to do this. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water, and at that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove. And it's been noted before by other pastors. I'll note it too. It wasn't a dove. It's been painted as a dove. It was a Spirit of God that alighted down like a dove might, and it sat there on Jesus, falling on him. Verse 17, and a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Then, with no break between chapters, and then when you read then in the scripture, it means, and the next thing you know, and the next thing you know, like the very next thing that happened, Jesus was led by the Spirit of God into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for leading Jesus 
into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Seems kind of strange. Verse 2, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So here we have the scene of Jesus' baptism, which, by the way, after he's baptized and after the, the temptation of Christ, he goes into his three public years of ministry. He begins it with his baptism. And after the scene of his baptism, we get what's internationally known as the temptation of Christ, where Jesus spends 40 days fasting only to be visited by the devil at the end of his fast to tempt Jesus while Jesus is in a vulnerable spot. He's been fasting. He's physically weakened. Jesus. And I don't need to ask this question because I believe you know, like, isn't this exactly what happens to us? When we seem to be at our most vulnerable spot, it's when something else from the enemy comes and piles on, right? The car's broken and the air conditioning breaks in your house. Double whammy. You get bad news at work and you get bad news at home. You're already struggling mentally with something and something else gets added on and you're in a vulnerable spot. And what I want to ask you today is what do you have in that spot? What are you equipped with in that spot that would assure you victory? Where you have the certainty of triumph because Jesus had something that assured him that the devil's words had no power over him. And I'm wondering this morning if you have the same thing. Or if you're in that vulnerable spot and you're like, I got nothing, devil just eat me. Because the Bible says in Peter that the devil roam, roam, roams around like a roaring lion. That's easy for me to say. Seeking whom he may devour. And does he devour the strong one who isn't vulnerable? Or does he get the little weakling that's off to the side? Have you ever been to Africa? Watch the safari. You'll see the little tiny vulnerable animal is the one that the lion gets it's like poor guy hope you enjoyed your lunch this is exactly what the enemy's trying to do to jesus and certainly does to us waits for us to be in a vulnerable vulnerable spot what is your defense jesus had a defense but before we talk about it let's talk about who this tempter is tempter You've heard this word, temptation. Where does this word come from? It's the Greek word parazo, which essentially means one who examines. My daughter, Audrey, turned 16 on March 14th, just a few weeks ago. And on March 15th, we went to hell. Also called the DMV. <laughs> I don't know if that joke was appropriate. <laughs> Forgive me. So we sat there in the chairs for a long time, and we sat, and we waited, and we waited, and waited, and finally this door opened, and this lady comes out, and she's got a clipboard, and she's walking around, and we're both looking at her, and like, is she the tempter? Is she the examiner? Audrey Ingram. I was like, oh my gosh. I'm like, you're going to do great. And she's walking away, I'm like, oh my God. I'm terrified of this lady. I'm not even getting in the car with her. 
right? And they go walking out, and apparently there was some confusion. Audrey's like, this is my car. The lady's like, your car is not parked right. She's like, that's not my car. That's my car. That car's parked the wrong direction. That's not my car. That's my car. It was so confusing to begin with. They get in there. She's gone 15 minutes. I'm sitting in the chairs the whole time. I'm like sweating and praying like, oh my gosh, Lord, just please let her live. Please, I don't know what's happening in the car. The lady was so scary. She had her clipboard, whatever. They come walking back in, and Audrey's walking behind her. I'm like, did you pass? I couldn't tell. She's like, I'm like, we go in a little side room, and the lady's like, you pass. I'm like, ah, ah, ah. This lady was the tempter. She was the examiner. What the examiner comes to do is to see what's on the inside. The test reveals what's going on in here. The test, this woman testing my daughter, revealed all the training she had been doing for the last year in her learner's permit, proving to this woman what she had inside. You can't tell just by looking at a person. She tested her. She tempted her. She examined her. The tempter comes to reveal the fiber of the person. So the Holy Spirit brings Jesus to the wilderness for an examination. It's exam week for Jesus. It's really exam 40 days. And how does the tempter come to examine Jesus? What is his his tactic? In the temptation of Christ, you would think that the temptation has everything to do with Jesus' hunger. He hasn't been eating for 40 days, and the devil says to him, turn these rocks into bread and eat it. And while that may be tempting, it's not the temptation that's at all at stake here when you read the temptation of Christ. This temptation that we're reading has nothing to do with bread and has everything to do with this one question. Does Jesus believe God's word? In Matthew chapter 3, verse 17, God himself says to Jesus, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And the devil comes along, and the very first thing he says to Jesus is, If you are the son of God. If? If, like really, again, is the tempter here wondering about Jesus' hunger? Or is the tempter here wondering about Jesus' faith in his own Father's very word? God has just said, you are my son. And the devil's wondering if Jesus actually believes it. Do you believe this? I'm not sure if you believe it or not, so maybe you ought to try and prove it. You need to prove to yourself that God's word is reliable. You can't just take God at his word. We gotta have some proof if, if, if. Hmm. Satan tempts Jesus in the same manner that he tempted God's people, the Israelites of old. He's asking them, will you trust God at his word or are you gonna despair and look for alternative methods to come to your rescue? I'm gonna read this piece of scripture And then we'll talk about what it means. I I think you might grab on anyway. There's some familiar words in here. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 1 to 3 says, Be careful to follow every command I am giving you today. This is God speaking to the Israelites in the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy means the law again. He had given them the law earlier. Now they're about to enter the promised land, and he's giving them the law again, saying, You're going to live differently in the promised land. 
You're going to live differently. You're going to be set apart because you're going to live according to my law. So I'm giving you this law today so that you may live and increase and may in, enter and possess the land the Lord promised on oath to your ancestors. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years. Why? To humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart. God's examining the Israelites now. Whether or not you would keep his commands, he humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then he fed you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had ever heard of. Like, this was brand new revelation. Why did God do all this? To teach the Israelites that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. These Israelites had not trusted God when God said to them, I'm going to give you the promised land. The first time they came to the River Jordan, they despaired about what was on the other side. You may know this story. They had been for 400 years slaves in Egypt. God set them free. They're marching towards the promised land. And when they get there, the spies that went into the land saw giants. And 10 of the spies, two of them were faithful. 10 of the spies were like, man, we're going to get crushed like grasshoppers. It's not going to go well for us. And the entire camp was filled with fear. They forgot what God had said, and they failed the test. God turned them around into the wilderness so that, you just read it here, they would learn, you don't live on bread alone, but on my words, on what I say. If you trust what I say and just do what I say, you're going to see my hand of provision with you and for you. You should have entered the promised land the first time, but now we're wandering in the wilderness until you learn. And finally, through their wilderness wanderings, they do learn that God's word is good, that they could and should trust him in all things. Jesus quoted this exact scripture, you heard me say it earlier, to the devil when he's tempting him with the same thing. Is God's word good? Can you trust what God has said into the promised land? This is my son. Jesus says, man doesn't live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Amen. I don't need to learn this lesson. I am the lesson. <laughs> is God's word reliable? Can you trust him? If the answer is no for us, which sometimes it is, then you better take matters into your own hands. You better take matters into your own hands, Jesus, and turn these rocks into bread. You better take matters in your own hand, Israelites, and turn away from the promised land. You better take matters in your own hand, Tim. Better take matters in your own hands, fill in the blank. This may be a little embarrassing to share, but I've never stopped me before, right? <laughs> sometimes I get an idea for a message, and I'm so excited about it that I jump in on Wednesday morning and begin writing. About halfway through the day of unproductivity, banging my head against the computer keyboard, staring at the wall, standing up and walking around, I have this realization. Not once in this writing have you stopped and asked God what he wants to be said. You're just taking matters into your own hands and writing away. And it isn't long into the writing where it becomes quicksand mixed with concrete and honey. Anything sticky, taffy, just drudgery, nothing happening. It's like writing constipation. Hey. 
<laughs> I don't know where that came from. <laughs> and then you stop and you pray, and the floodgates open every single time. And usually this is what the Lord says. Stop writing and just keep reading. Just read the scripture again and again and again. And everything flows from that place of his word instead of my word. Listen to this statement. If you want to have failure in your own life, just say to God, I got this. I got this, God. Sing this song. I got the whole world in my hands. I got the whole world. Don't, don't sing that. I got my marriage, God. I got this. I got my finance, God. I got my career, God. I got my health, God. I got, I got all of this, God. I don't need you. When you start speaking that to God, whether you're saying it out loud or living it with your life, you can expect hardship is coming because you've taken matters into your own hands. You're ordering your life around your limited earthly viewpoint as opposed to the infinite wisdom and power of God. The alternative is to say to God, hey God, I, I need you, like we sang this morning, I need you, and then to hear the Lord say to you, I got this. That's what you want to hear. You don't need to be God because you already have me, says the Lord. From the beginning, oh, by the way, just a side note, this same temptation that ha happened to the Israelites, that happened to Jesus, happened all the way at the beginning in Genesis chapter 3 with Adam and Eve. You, we've, we've talked about this here before. When the, the tempter says to Adam and Eve, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Because this tree would give them the wisdom of good and evil. And so the devil's not tempting them with the food. He's tempting them with them being their own God. Like, hey, you could know everything that God knows and become God. Take matters into your own hands. Don't listen to his words. Listen to your own words. So what I've been trying to show you today, I think it's become kind of obvious that from the beginning, Satan has been trying to convince us that God's word is useless and to doubt it. To throw it out. If Satan tempted our ancestors and Adam and Eve and the Israelites, if Satan tempted our Savior over the validity of God's word, you better believe he's going to be tempting us, examining us as to whether or not we think that this book is not false, but true, authoritative, and able to defeat the schemes of the enemy. Hmm. It's not antiquated. It's alive today. There's a story that Jesus tells in the Bible. It's a metaphor. Jesus calls them parables. It's just a story that has a point. There's a teaching in it. And in this story, he's telling people why this word doesn't take root in so many people. The word goes forth, but it doesn't change a lot of people. Well, is it the word that's the issue? The word must be faulty. There's something broken with this. It's clearly not working because it's not changing anybody. And Jesus is like, I, that's not the issue. There's a reason why when the, the word is scattered, the seed is scattered, that it's not taking root. He says three reasons. The second reason, he says, is that the worries of the world choke out the word. So we hear the word on a Sunday morning, and you leave, and as soon as you get in the car, you got a text that has bad news or a calendar reminder of something coming up this week, 
or a bill that's hitting, or whatever the case may be, it's not good, and it chokes out the very thing that you just heard in a service. The third thing that he said chokes out the Word of God is persecution from other people. And this is what they say. You actually believe that? Like you, that's craziness. You're reading that? And when we get the persecution, the Bible says we shrink back from the word of God. That's the third reason. You want to know what the number one reason, the first reason that the word doesn't take root? Let's read it together. Mark chapter 4, verse 14. The farmer, God, sows the word. Some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, this should be no surprise to us after everything else we've learned today, Satan himself comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. He's a thief. He's a robber. He's breaking into the hearts of people in this room on a weekly basis to steal that which God is trying to plant into your spirit. Why would, why would he do that? I, I want to go back to this scripture here in my notes and show you this. Paul's been teaching about forgiveness. This is going to be 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11. He's talking about forgiveness, and uh, he ends with this statement. It's very, very pointed. He says, all this stuff about forgiveness, let's do all this about forgiveness so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, fall prey to his schemes, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Everything that we're teaching today is to make us not ignorant of the devil's design. His design from the beginning has always been to steal the word of truth from people who would believe it. Because he's the father of lies, and his plans is to destroy truth with lies. Satan clearly designed from the beginning to make us question the validity of God's word. I don't know if I've said that enough. And this may be one of the reasons that we don't feed ourselves. Because Satan has come and deceived us to think that this doesn't make a difference. That when I read it, I won't understand it. That it's not valid in my life. It's a big if. If the Bible were true, if the Bible were valid, it turns out the differentiator in all this is the condition of our hearts. Jesus calls it soil in the parable I was sharing. In some, the soil is not ready to receive the word, but in other soil, good soil, it receives it and great things happen. Listen, Mark chapter 4, verse 20, other Others, like seed sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop, some 30, some 60, some 100 times what was sown. If the seed is sown into good soil. Did you know that you can take a shovel of dirt from your yard and send it to the county, and they'll do like a soil sample testing of your soil? You can do this. I can tell you what nutrients and vitamins are in there, if there's anything good or anything bad, if it's suitable to raise a garden in that soil. They'll tell you all these things. Let's just think for a minute, what would happen if Jesus himself were to come today and take a soil sample of our hearts? 
Like, what would he find? Would he find their vitamins and nutrients that give us life? King David had a lot of errors in his life. But one thing that he constantly did, listen to Psalm 40, verse 8, I desire to do your will, my God. Your law is within my heart. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. He had errors, yet he still had the word of God in his heart. And he marinated on the word of God constantly. And this is what the Lord said of him. King David, he has integrity of heart and skill of hands. Integrity of heart and skill of hands. How did that come? Because he had this in here. Here's the whole point of today. Listen to me. The devil's not the brightest angel in the bunch. His plan is so obvious that we should sit around and look at the devil and be like, duh. His plan is this. I know that this, this truth, will crush my schemes. And so I'm going to spend all of my days from Adam and Eve through the Israelites to Jesus to us here today to steal this word, this truth from the people of God so that they can't use it as a weapon against me like Jesus did in the temptation. It's so obvious. But here's the truth. He's outwitted us. The very thing that Paul is warning us against so that we won't be outwitted by the devil is happening. You know how I know? Because I'm getting a righteous anger in me at the enemy in regards to this biblical issue. Because I'm sick and tired of marriages being blown up. I'm sick and tired of addictions running rampant. I'm sick and tired of children having identity crisis, not knowing who they are. I'm sick and tired of anxiety running rampant, right? Flourishing. I'm sick and tired of moral bankruptcy being champion. I'm sick and tired of leadership throughout our, all of our nations not trusting or believing in this word. And to me, based on what I've read, it's because the devil's plan is working. Just make them think for a second. Did God really say, if this book is really true, Hmm. So I have one word for the enemy. And I want you to join with me today in this word. Enough. Enough's enough. Enough is absolutely enough. We're not stupid people. We now see clearly the devil's schemes. We're not ignorant to it any longer. We see your schemes, devil. We see your designs and we reject them. We're no longer gonna let you have mastery over us. Instead, this is what I'm gonna declare. I am a reader of this word. I am a believer of this word. It is true, it is without error. It's not mixture of good and wrong. It's all good, all God, all truth, all the time. And I'm no longer subjecting myself to the lies of the enemy because I've replaced them with the truth of God. This only happens when you feed yourself 
You've got to get this in you. The devil wants you to be like, sorry. We're going to be readers, believers, and eaters of the Word of God. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, let's pray. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your Word. We thank you that it is good and true. We're going to stand upon the foundation of the Word, which is Jesus Christ himself. And we will not be shaken. When the rains come, the winds blow, and the earth trembles, we will not be moved. We built our house on the rock of your word. Praise be to God. Praise you, God. Church, today as we're sitting here, there may be some of you who have never entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ, or you've been out there in the world and it's time to return home. And we at Illuminate Church, we just, it's not us, it's the whole church, capital C Church across the world, make a singular confession that Jesus is Lord. And when we say those words out of our mouths and believe them in our hearts, the, the Bible tells us that we are saved. We're brought into relationship with Jesus, forgiven of our sins, given access to the Holy of Holies, the place where God resides, His presence, and eternally living with Him, just with that one confession saying, Jesus is Lord. So all together, church, out of our mouths, on the count of three, let's make this declaration. One, two, three. Jesus is the Lord. One more time, Jesus is Lord. Glory to your name. Maybe you're making that declaration for the first time today or it's been a while since you've said it. And I'm just gonna count to three. And if you've made that declaration today for the first time or once again, just coming back home, I just want you to raise your hand and I wanna recognize you, just me and you. One, two, three, anyone here today making that declaration? Thank you, God. Thank you for seeds planted, Lord. I pray the seed is landing on fertile, good soil in Jesus' matchless name. Lord, there's none that we need but you. We need you, and we need to hear that you've got it, and your word tells us that it does, and we believe it in our spirit and our soul, and we return our love and affection to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.